I'm so thankful that out of all of the places in all of the world that you could have been this morning, that you chose to be with us at Grace Assembly today. This is a significant day. For those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ and have put our faith in Him already, this is the day of celebration. This is the day when we begin to recognize and or, or, or resurfaces in our thinking just how much we love the Lord for what He has done for us. I also understand that there may be those of you who have yet, coming into the house of the Lord this morning, that you've not yet had an opportunity to put your faith in Jesus. And I want you to know that before this morning is over, you're going to have that chance. That this might be a significant day for you as you go forward because it could be the day that changes your life forever. I want to speak to you for just a few minutes this morning on the topic of evidence for Easter. And at the end of the message this morning, we're going to give an opportunity to weigh the evidence and make a decision that Jesus asks every one of us to make. And that's whether or not you will believe him and what he's done for you and whether or not you will become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. For those of you who will choose to express faith in Jesus and become a follower of his today, we will have people that will be available at the end of the service this morning to meet you over on this side of the sanctuary that would love to be able to express to you the decision that you've made today and help walk alongside of you. We believe that the decision that you make to follow Christ is one that you must make as an individual, but the journey of growing in the Lord is one you make corporately with his church, and we want to connect you with that. There's a passage of scripture in Matthew chapter 26 that I would like for you to turn to that I'm going to be drawing some theme thoughts out of in verses 31 and 32 of Matthew chapter 26. The scripture indicates that then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Lord, over these next few moments, I ask that you would allow there to be a sense of your presence that we describe as the anointing of your Holy Spirit that would open up our hearts to the truth of your word. We who know you, Lord, celebrate this day, and those that may be here that have never asked you to be their personal Savior, may this be the day that transforms not only their life, but their eternity. May your word sway us with its truth, I pray. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. On what basis should we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and is alive today and reigning as the Son of God? Before I get into the theme of, of the message of these verses, I, I want to begin just to in the evidence of Easter, have you asked some questions with me that I believe that we can answer that will help those of you that may not fully understand or may not fully believe everything that Jesus has done? We believe that Easter is foundational. And to stress the fact that Christianity is based on historical events and facts and not just spiritual ideas and experiences, there are some things that I believe are important for us to know. Phil Donahue a number of years ago, and some of you may remember him from way back when he had a TV show, and before that he had been an investigative reporter, was teaching a class at one of the colleges. 
At that class, he asked the students that were there if they could want to ask him anything they want. And there was one student that stood up and they asked him this question. Mr. Donahue, out of all of the years of your investigative reporting, if there was only one question that you could ask that you could get a straight answer to, what would be the one question that you believe is the most important question that could be asked? Without hesitation, he said this. My question would be, did Jesus Christ really rise from the dead? He said, because if he did, it changes the world and the way we think. The answer to that question changes the world and the way that we think. I want you to know today that Christianity is based on historical facts or it is nothing. If Jesus Christ did not live and die and rise from the dead as a historical person at a point in time, in a particular place, then Christianity is a sham and there's other things that we could be doing today besides being here. But Christianity is built out of these truths. Number one, God created the world. He guides and sustains the world. In his divine son, Jesus Christ, he entered the world. And that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. And that he died as a substitute to pay the price that my sins and your sins demanded on a particular day a little over 2,000 years ago in a particular place just outside of Jerusalem, and that God raised him from the dead on the third day. Following that, he sent his followers throughout the world to make disciples of every nation, and he ascended to heaven where he reigns at the right hand of the Father from which he will come again and establish his kingdom forever. I don't know about you, but that makes me want to shout hallelujah to the King of Kings. Everything that I just told you, these are all objective historical events and they're not just spiritual ideas or philosophies. So I pose the question at the outset, on what basis should we believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and is alive today, reigning as the Son of God? Before getting into my text let me just quickly give you some things that you may want to jot down. And I believe that there's an outline in the bulletin for those of you that may want to write down some notes. But just to answer some questions for you. Five lines of evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. The first line of evidence is the testimony of the Apostle Paul. We have 13 letters from his pen. He was a contemporary of Jesus. He claimed to have seen the risen Christ. He spoke to others who had also seen him. And the Bible tells us that as many as 500 people saw him after he was resurrected from the dead. Which gives to Paul and to his writings something that we call historical control. Which means that there's good reason to take seriously what he says because if he had been wrong, there were a number of other people around that could have falsified his testimony. It's a fact. Second, we have the fact of the empty tomb in Jerusalem. Jesus had been buried. This is relevant because the claim that Jesus raised from the dead spread throughout a city that was not necessarily happy about that. In fact, the religious rulers of the time did everything in their power to discount it. And if they could have produced a body, Christianity would have been dead right there. But they could never produce the body, the dead body of Jesus. Then you look at the courage of the disciples. Their willingness to lay down their lives for what they preached about how Jesus rose from the dead. Interesting enough about this, 
is these are the same men that just a few weeks before ran away in coward and fear at his death because they were so afraid that everything they had believed was not true. Yet after his resurrection, they were so filled with power and conviction, it changed their lives and their message forever. What takes place in a human being at that that changes things forever? I don't believe that it's because they thought Jesus was a fraud but that they recognized that everything he said was real. Then for those of you that love to study in your Bible, you read the diverse testimonies of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Peter and James and the writer to Hebrews. And you get to know these men as they write and you begin to see that they are credible witnesses to what they had seen and experienced. And the more you read, the more you see that they are worthy of your confidence, even to the skeptics of our own day. And then you look at the sum of everything and you begin to see the ring of truth around the biblical vision of the world. And it allows us to understand that there is a God of creation, that there is sin, that there is Christ, there is one who died for us, and one who gives us hope today because he came and took the price for us. Five lines of evidence. And I hope that you will pursue these because your eternal life hangs in the balance of what you conclude about this evidence of Easter. The point of my message this morning is not merely about the historical fact that Christ died or that he was raised from the dead, but rather that Jesus Christ is sovereign over us, that he is merciful to us, and that he extends grace to us. His sovereignty was secured for us by his death defeating resurrection which we celebrate on Easter morning hallelujah mercy secured by his wrath removing death for our sins and grace that is evidenced by our eternal promises and the gifts that he gives to us in life the reason that I focus on these three things is that I believe that these are the things that we need today in a world just like ours that is desperately needy we need mercy because every one of us has a guilty conscience. Every one of us has things in our past and in our life we are ashamed of or wish we had done differently. Just this week, I stopped into a place to get a cup of coffee and I could hear the clerk talking with one of the customers and they were talking about Easter. They were talking about Jesus and some of the information that they were sharing with each other was not accurate. But I was in such a hurry to get to the office to start planning what was going to happen today that rather than diving into that, I grabbed my coffee and ran. Jumped into the car, and as I get in the car, threw it in gear and started to drive, I felt the touch of the Holy Spirit on my shoulder. He goes, why are you in such a hurry? Why can't you just take a minute? And in those moments, I don't know about you, but I talk to myself. Hold some really good conversations. And in that moment when I felt the regret of the Spirit, I started saying to myself, what's wrong with you, Doug? Why can't you just stop for a minute and, and just let the, the list of things you must do, just let it rest for a moment so that you can obey the prompting of the Spirit because you never know what He wants to do. And in that moment, I begin to feel again the guilt of sin and rush because our consciences are all guilty. Now, if you don't have conversations like that, please don't make that the determining factor of whether you'll ever come back to this church or not again. <clears throat> we are sinners. And our own hearts condemn us in the most 
honest times, we know how far we are from God's design for us and how desperately we need mercy. But if God is sovereign but merciless, then we are done for. There's no hope, and we may as well eat and drink and be merry because we are damned anyway if there is no mercy to be found in a sovereign God. We desperately need a merciful Savior. Our heart tells us this, and more clearly the Bible tells us this. But as much as we need a merciful Savior, we also need a sovereign Lord. If Christ is merciful to us, but doesn't have the sovereignty to rule the forces that threaten us, then what good is his mercy if he feels good about us, but doesn't have the power to do anything within our life? Our lives are fragile. And they are vulnerable in so many different ways. Just this past week, we all looked on in horror as there was a bombing in the airport in Brussels, Belgium. One of our Assembly of God missionaries had just gone through the front door pulling a suitcase when the bomb went off. And he said ceiling tiles fell and landed on his suitcase. He grabbed it, turned around, and ran out the front door as quickly as he could. Recognizing everything that had delayed him for one minute or a minute and a half that could have put him right there. We wonder sometimes in our world and in our life, when and where will terrorists strike again? What's going to happen between Israel and the Palestinians and the global tension that that situation creates? What's going to happen in North Korea and the nuclear threat that may be there? We sometimes wonder when is the next big 911 going to happen on American soil? Or sometimes we think of things a little closer to our own homes. What's going to happen to my health? Or the health of my children? Or my spouse? Or my parents? That could instantly turn my world upside down. You see, as we begin to look at our lives, we recognize that we are all fragile and we are all vulnerable. We are not as tough as we think we are. Every one of us. And if you're honest, you know that you cannot protect yourselves from these things. And if you devote your life to trying, then you will become a pitiful old man or a pitiful old woman, barricaded and lonely, behind the illusion of your self-made security. We live in a dangerous world. In other words, we need a sovereign Lord. One who is Lord over our world. We need one who rules over terrorists. We need one who rules over disease. We need one who rules over disaster. We need one who rules over accidents. And right down to one who rules over the very details of our lives. It's not that he will always spare us from calamity. The Bible doesn't teach us that he will. But what it says is that we serve a God who is merciful and he's grace-filled and he won't let any calamity come upon you that is not designed for your ultimate good and his ultimate glory. He is one that walks with us and stands with us and holds us in the moments when we have no strength. He's an abiding Savior. So my assertion this morning is that Jesus Christ is merciful because he died for our sins. Jesus Christ is sovereign because he rose from the dead. And Jesus Christ is grace-filled because he elevates us to become heirs with him as the heavenly Father's kingdom becomes our own. And he's building a place for us to join him there. And he gives us great gifts. So over these next moments, I want to invite you to look at three things with me that I believe are evidence in Scripture that should fill us today with 
a deep-seated peace that everything that Jesus says is true. First of all, look with me at the evidence of Jesus' sovereignty. You can see this in verse 31 of our text. Because he begins to predict the behavior of people and he predicts his own resurrection. In verse 31 it says, Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on on account of me. Within this prediction of Jesus, he authoritatively predicts what every one of them will do. And then in verse 32 he says this, But after I have risen, which is the prediction that he will rise from the dead, he said, after that, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And Jesus predicts with authority his own resurrection from the dead. Now, as you examine this evidence with me, you might want to question, why do you think that this prediction implies Christ's sovereignty? Many people will say to this, hey, Jesus, we know, was a great man and a good prophet. Maybe he just had enough insight into the behavior of people that he knew these men that were sitting around the table well enough with him that he knew that they would wimp out on him when the opportunity came and things got tough, and he just knew that about them. So it's not necessarily prediction. It's just understanding human behavior. And then you add to that others that would say, well, maybe, maybe... He knew that God was going to raise him from the dead, or at least he hoped he would, because he was such a good man and a good prophet that he felt God would do this for him because of the good life that he had lived. I want you to understand there's way more to it than that. Notice in the last part of verse 31, the part that I did not read originally, that Jesus says this, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written... I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus, when he is speaking here in the scriptures that we hold so dear, is saying right now, I want you to understand that the reason all of this is happening is not because of my keen insight into all of you, but it is written. The Bible says it's going to happen, and God is at work in a plan that you cannot see. He quotes the prophecy of Zechariah 13, 7. That's the ultimate reason why the disciples fall away. There is an invisible hand that is at work within these hours. And everything is going according to plan. This is the sovereignty of God accomplishing our salvation through the orchestrated death of his son Jesus Christ within our place. But you say, all right, all right. I can see that there's sovereignty there. Not only does he predict the behavior of all his disciples as it happens, but I want you to see even more clearly what's taking place here. Here's what he does. If you look within this chapter, he not only predicts the behavior of his disciples before it happens, but he gets really, really specific with some things. In fact, he tells Judas within this verse that you read in verse 25, then Judas who was the one who would portray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said, Yes, it is you. In other words, here's Judas sitting at that table. Jesus is talking about what's going to happen. And Judas, knowing what he's going to do, but having not told Jesus about it, not told anybody about it, he says, It's not me. And Jesus said, Yes, it is. It's you, Judas. Can you imagine the shivers that went down Judas instantly as Jesus predicted the behavior that would bring about his betrayal? And it doesn't end there. As he goes around the table, it tells us in verse 34 that Peter was there. Now, I I love Peter for lots of reasons. 
Peter was very strong about his convictions, felt that there was nothing that he couldn't overcome. And Jesus looks at Peter and he said, listen, dude, before you get too high on yourself, I want you to know that before this night is over, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Peter looks at Jesus and said, you are out of your mind. Out of everybody here, I look at these weak people around me and I can recognize that you can see some weakness in them, but you have, you have miscalculated on me, Jesus. I would die for you rather than run from you. Now, Jesus predicted to Peter not only how many times he denied him, but exactly the moments when he would do it and what would happen immediately after the third time. You would think that Peter, with this kind of knowledge, would at least man up and not do what had been predicted. Don't you think if somebody prophesied something to you that you didn't want to happen, that you would do everything in your power to make sure that it didn't happen? Peter couldn't do it. Because Jesus wasn't predicting. Jesus knew what was going to happen. Because he's sovereign. And Jesus interprets this amazing foreknowledge with these words in John chapter 13, verse 19. I am telling you this now, before it happens... So that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. In other words, listen to me. There's going to come a moment in time when you're going to question, who am I? And the reason I'm telling you all of this is going to happen so that when it does, you step back and you go, he is sovereign God. He really is. Therefore, the significance of the detailed prediction of the specific behavior, of specific people, down to the detail of specific times, are Jesus' way of saying to all of us today, I am not a mere man, I am God incarnate, and therefore I am sovereign, and I hold all of the power over everything that you see and the unseen. And then he goes farther. And in regard to the prediction of his own resurrection, he says, but after I have risen... I will go ahead of you to Galilee. This is not the words of somebody who's hoping that there's a power in God that will elevate him out of the grave just because he's been a good man. In fact, listen to his explanation that Jesus gives to us in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This is Jesus declaring to all of us today, I am a sovereign God who not only knows what you do and what you're thinking and the decisions that you're going to make, I am the one who laid down my life for you knowing I had the power to raise it up again because I am he who declares that I am God. And only I have the sovereignty and the power to do that. He did this of his own power and of his own sovereignty. Therefore, I conclude that Jesus Christ, the God-man, is sovereign. He is what our world needs today. He said after his resurrection and just before he returned from heaven, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, here's what I'd like you to do with that. I'm believing that tonight is going to be just as clear as it is today. Sometime tonight, I'd like you to go outside and just... Look into the sky. Don't try to count the stars. You'll get all messed up. But I want you to look as far as you can 
Because what Jesus just declared to us is what we see on this earth, he's in control of. But he's also in control of everything that takes place in the universe. The stars that we can see, the galaxies that we cannot see, he's ruling them all because he is our sovereign God. And he said, I own it all. I always have, always will. It's in my authority. That's what we need. In the middle of presidential elections that we don't know what's going to happen, we need a sovereign God. In the middle of terrorism, we need a solid, sovereign God. In the middle of Israel and North Korea and terrorists and natural disasters and diseases and accidents, we need a sovereign Lord who looks at us and said, I own it all. I own it all. He's also merciful. Let me present the evidence of Jesus' mercy within this scripture. You see, if Jesus wasn't merciful, then he could use his sovereignty against us and not for us. Think about that for a minute. He could be sovereign and not love us. He could be in charge of everything, and he could become the worst dictator the universe has ever seen. But he begins to describe himself in some new ways to us. We turn to the mercy of Christ, and we see this within our text. It's seen in a very pointed and precious way by comparing the first part of verse 31 and the last part of verse 32. Jesus says in verse 31, you will all fall away because of me this night. In the last part of verse 32, he says, but I will go before you to Galilee. Have any of you ever let somebody down that you didn't want to? Have any of you ever seen the hurt in somebody's eyes that you knew you loved and you had hurt them deeply? Have any of you ever felt horrible about what you've done? Most of us probably can think of situations in our life where that has taken place. And I want you to also picture what happens if the person that you have hurt so desperately and so deeply, the next time you see them, most of the time we try to avoid them because we don't want to see that look. But what happens if the next time you see them, they look at you and they smile and they come running to you and you've discovered that they never told anybody about what you did. They never badmouthed you. They didn't plot revenge. All they wanted to do was hug you and be restored. They were kind to you. They helped you and they treated you as if you had done nothing wrong. What do you call this? Call it mercy. You call it mercy, and it's the sweetest thing in the world. And that's what Jesus did. They had all deserted him, even big mouth Peter, who said, I'll never fall away from you. And perhaps the worst, he couldn't even stand up to girls. At night, when they couldn't even see his face clearly. But Jesus said to them, in their hour of greatest need, he said, after I'm raised... I'm going to go before you to Galilee. What Jesus is saying to them in this is, listen, I know you're all about to blow it. I know that you are going to say and do some things about me that are going to really make you upset with yourself. But I want you to know that when you're all done with that, I'm still going to be your friend. I'm still going to love you. We're still going to have a relationship. And your failure is not enough for me to dismiss you. It's as if you and a friend were walking down the road together, speaking of your friendship, and people jump out and begin to attack you, and you recognize that you're one step faster than your friend, and they grab him or they grab her. And they begin to beat on them and beat them up, and you, you look back and you know in that instant, I should go back and help, but the fear of what could happen to you prompts you to keep running and to leave them in the middle of that situation. 
And then the next day, as you're walking through there, your friend comes out. He's cast on his arm, all beaten up, stitches everywhere. And they see you, and they run to you and hug you and say, Oh, I'm so glad that you're okay. I'm so glad everything went with you, that went well with you. It's so good to see you. Would that not break your heart? Does mercy not break our hearts? And this is what Jesus does for everyone who comes to him for forgiveness and acceptance. He doesn't treat us the way we deserve to be treated as the cowards that we are. He says, no, come to me. Come to me. Give me a hug. Because I told you, after I rise again, I'm going ahead of you to Galilee and we're going to reunion, have a reunion there. Thirdly, let me share with you the evidence of God's grace within these verses. He tells them that he's going to go ahead of them into Galilee. Jesus is saying, I know that in your fear of everything that's going to happen and the shame that you feel for me tonight, that I know you're going to feel bad about it. And there's going to come a time when you're feeling so bad about it, you're going to want to have everything renewed. And I'm looking forward to seeing you after this is all over. And then he says this, and what I'm going to give to you when I see you after I've got victory over the grave is I've got gifts for you. I've got gifts for you. Now, I want you to know something. There's a difference between mercy and grace. And let me summarize it for you here. Mercy is God not punishing us as our sins deserve. Mercy is deliverance from judgment. That is the reason those of us that know Jesus celebrate today because I know what's in my past and I know what he forgave me of. It's under the blood. I don't have to fear the judgment of God because of his mercy to me. Oh, hallelujah. I'm guilty, but he treats me as if I'm not. And then there's the grace of God. God's grace is God's blessing to us, despite the fact that we do not deserve it. God gives us gifts. He blesses us, and he's kind to us. Hallelujah for the mercy and grace of a loving Savior that comes to us. Rescued from judgment by God's mercy, grace is anything and everything that we receive beyond mercy. Mercy and grace are best illustrated at salvation that's available through Jesus Christ. Whether you believe it or not about yourself, you deserve judgment. You are guilty. But when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, He takes your place. We receive mercy from God and we're delivered from judgment. And instead of judgment, we are received from God this great salvation, forgiveness of sins, abundant life, and an eternity in heaven, which are all gifts that He gives to us. There's perfection waiting for us. Because of the grace of God. Hebrews 4.16 says this. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Now I want you to think about this verse in light of what we are learning today. If Jesus was still mad at you. And some of you have this fear that God hates me. If you only knew what I had done pastor. You would know that the fact that I'm here on an Easter Sunday is amazing. But, but God cannot possibly accept me. I want you to know not only does he accept you. But he can't wait to embrace you and he says within his scripture that the throne of grace you can come confidently to does that sound like he wants you to come shivering like a, a scared dog before him it sounds as if he said i provided for you a way that when you come into my presence you can do so confidently because i've already taken care of everything that you were ashamed of 
Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I conclude with this story. This is a true story told by Jim Bradford about a professor at the Hannibal LaGrange College in Missouri. The professor had told his students all semester long, you need to know that attendance is important, but the most important part of what's going to happen in this class is your final. That final, the final grade that you receive is going to be the vast majority. In fact, if you can get an A on the final, you'll get an A in the class. So you need to know that ahead of time. Finally, the day arrived for the final. And as people began to come into his class, some had prepared well and others were more nervous at both their preparation and their prospects of doing well. Finally, after everybody was seated in the classroom, the professor looked at them and said, I'm going to hand this exam out and I want you to keep it face down until I tell you to turn it over. And with great seriousness, he went through and he put a test on the desk of everybody that was there. After they'd all been distributed, he looked at the class and said, one more time, I want you to know how important this test is. Good luck. You may begin. And every student in that class turned their test over. And as they began to read the first question, they looked down below the question and discovered to their shock that the professor had written in the answer in his own handwriting underneath the first question. They begin to turn to the next page and they noticed again in the second question that the professor in his own handwriting had written out completely and fully the answer to the second question. And it was just a matter of seconds before you could hear the rustling of pages that were all being turned around the whole classroom. As every student began to re realize as they were looking through their exam that their professor had written the correct answer to every question on the final exam that they had just received. On the very last page, the professor had written these words. This is the end of the exam. All the answers on your test are correct. If you won't challenge or change any of the correct answers that I have given you, you will receive an A on the final exam and an A in this course. And then he wrote in bold letters, the reason that you passed this test is because the creator of this test took it for you. Took it for you. He said, all of the work that you did in preparation for this test did not help you at all in getting an A in this class. There was a Christian girl that was sitting in that class. And from her report later on about what took place, she said, Dr. Hufty stood there just before dismissing his students and he told them this. In your life, there's three ways that you're going to learn. Some things you learn through lecture. Some things you learn through research. Some things you must learn by experience. You have just experienced grace. And he concluded his class with these words. A hundred years from now, if you have accepted the finished work of Jesus Christ and everything that he has accomplished for you, you will have your name written down in a book and you will have had nothing to do with it because he did it all for you. All you have to do today is accept the answers that Jesus has already written on the exam of life for you and he will give to you 
mercifully, not the judgment you deserve, but love, and gracefully he will give to you blessings on this earth and an eternity in heaven with him without any shame. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. You may have spent a lifetime deserting him or betraying him or denying him. But if you will come to him this morning, he says to you, I will be your sovereign, merciful Savior, and I will extend grace to you to give you everything that you need. Today we declare on this Easter that he's a sovereign God, full of mercy, abounding in grace to you. And by his mercy, he will forgive your sins. If you are here today, I'm going to ask for you to respond to this because this is a decision that every one of us must personally make. You are not allowed into heaven because you come from a family that knows Jesus. It's got to be your own personal decision. And we literally have had people walking through these aisles for weeks praying for this very moment that as the Holy Spirit begins to tap you on the shoulder that you will walk in obedience. So what we're going to do is I'm going to ask that everybody's heads be bowed. And if you want to respond to Jesus today, when I call out your section, I'm going to ask that you would just lift your head and look me in the eyes. And I will agree with you. Then I'm going to pray for everybody that responds. And then I'll give you instructions for after the service is over what you can do to take the next steps. I'm beginning on my right and your far left. And I would say to you today, if Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart and you want him to be your savior today, would you just lift your head and look at me? so that I can agree with you. Yes, sir, I agree with you. Are there others today? Is Jesus knocking? Moving into the left center section now as I look over the the group that's sitting there. Yes, ma'am, I agree with you. Yes, ma'am, I agree with you. Are there others today? Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart. Are there others? Moving now to the other center section. Is Jesus knocking at the door of your heart? Is this your moment? We've been praying for you. Yes, sir, I agree with you. Are there others? Jesus has his hands extended to you today, not to give you what you deserve, but sovereignly as God to give you mercy and grace. Moving over now into the far right section. Is this your moment? Looking into the overflow today. Is Jesus knocking on the door of your heart? Yes, ma'am, I agree with you. Are there others? Yes, ma'am, I agree with you. Hallelujah. I'm going to ask that you would open your eyes and that you would stand with me, please. As we stand, I'm going to ask those who are our altar workers if they would prepare themselves by coming and standing over against this wall over here in preparation to meet with those of you who have made a decision this morning. We celebrate Easter not because of anything we did. It's all on Him. It's all on Him. And we get all the benefits. And so, Lord, right now I pray for those that responded today that have been feeling the knock of the Spirit on their heart. I ask, Lord, that not only would they have the courage to lift up their head in recognition that they need you as a sovereign, merciful, grace-giving God, but also that you would give them the courage not to leave this place until they have talked to somebody and been giving some information about what it means to take some first steps in this relationship. Every one of us have come to you through Jesus. None of us can do it on our own. We had to have a Savior to be able to have this joy. And so we all come to you the same way. 
Father, for those that heard the evidence today but are still weighing it, I pray that though they leave this place, that your Holy Spirit will continue to press in upon them that this is the decision that they need to make in order to have life in you. Thank you, Jesus. Those words seem so shallow and hollow compared to everything that you did for us, but all we can say is thank you, Jesus, for what you did for me. You took my test that I would have failed, and you got it all right. And I get the blessings of everything that you did in my life. Lord, as we prepare now throughout this day to go and celebrate with family and friends this holiday, may we also remember that it is a holy day. And may we elevate you in our thinking as the sovereign God who can do anything because you own the universe. As the merciful God who took my judgment for me. And as the graceful God who welcomed me home when I was far from you. We pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen. If you brought a guest today to the house of the Lord and they have some questions, take some time and speak to them and introduce them to Jesus. And if you responded this morning as people are departing, feel free to come and talk to these who are standing over here. We don't want to embarrass you, but there's a journey that you're about to begin that will be the best journey of your life because it will lead you to be with Jesus. Happy Easter. God bless you.